Welcome to the Ready Eddy Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. What is going on, Ready Eddy Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, your host, and on today's episode, I'm sitting down with Brian Carraway, the founder of Flying Squirrel Outfitters. Uh, Brian, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Without a doubt. So you're, you're joining me from the other side of the world in, in Chiang Mai, it's Thailand. Good. So it's <laughs> nice and early for you and nice and late for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'm, I like I'm a day ahead of you. I'm in the future. Yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, you, you're in the future. <laughs> Time traveling on a live podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so for the listener that may not be familiar with Flying Squirrel Outfitters, obviously you, got, you guys make hammocks. That's your main that, that's your business. For for the listener that may not be familiar, how would you describe uh, Flying Squirrel to them? So, yeah, at our core, we we are a, a hammock manufacturer. But I think I think one of the biggest things that sets us apart really is that everything is handmade in house. So we have a team of seamstresses uh, in s- small villages in northern Thailand that hand make every product um, from their home. So they're literally at home. We give them all the materials and they develop everything um, from the comfort of home with no set working hours. Uh, we have loose production schedules. Um, so uh, yeah, we, we basically uh, create um, a very positive environment for, for our team to work within. And we think we make uh, much higher quality products as a result of that, basically empowering our team to be a part of the company instead of just relegated to just production only. So, um, yeah, I'd I'd say what really sets us apart as Flying Squirrel is that we are all in-house, no mass factory production, um, all handmade as a small cottage uh, producer. So how did you get into this? What made you decide to start a hammock company with obviously a social impact uh, or focus in trying to help create livable wages for locals in Thailand. Sure, it it kind of came about. I I I was in Seattle uh, working um, for about six years, and I just kind of up and decided to make a change in my life. And I moved to Thailand, and I uh, came to Chiang Mai, and was here for about a year. I I like taught English part-time and just didn't really know what my next steps were going to be, but uh, I wanted to travel and have some new experiences. Um, and coming out here to Chiang Mai, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations that are doing different kinds of projects, dealing with a variety of issues from human trafficking um, to refugees issues uh, on the borders here with Thailand and Myanmar. Companies um, locally also working with hill tribes, um, a lot of uh, fair trade companies working with, um, you know, local people with local products. And I, I saw how companies could structure themselves in a way that they could, yeah, actually be for profit and still have some, um, um, some impact or benefit to um, either their cause or the people that are actually manufacturing their products or like some of these NGOs, they, they were set out with a, a, a purpose. And um, a lot of early advice that I got about any kind of next steps that you take, make sure that you're passionate about it um, and that you're inspired in what you do. So 
I think in the back of my mind, I kind of had an idea that I, I wanted to start something. I, I didn't know what, um, but how the hammock thing came about. So uh, my existing partner now, his name is Udom. He's, he's an interesting guy. He's uh, American, but born and raised in Thailand. So uh, he more or less identifies as Thai. So I wanted a hammock for my, my townhome at the time. And so I, I went online looking for you know, a Thai style hammock if that even existed, which it, which it doesn't. Uh, so I, I, uh, heard about him working with Hill tries making like a, like woven Mayan style hammocks, which are more, you know, kind of garden, garden hammocks, uh, for the home. And it was just a, an amazing story, um, about how these hammocks have kind of built this micro economy for this, this Hill tribe community. It w- wasn't too far outside of town. And I said, so cool. If anything, I could do like a case study and just learn about what they were doing out there. So I contacted the guy, um, contacted Udom, went out there, uh, stayed at the, um, in the community where the tribe was, learned about everything that they were doing. Um, and so Udom could tell I was quite excited with what was happening. And, uh, he at the time was actually looking to bring more work to more people in this community. So the work was spreading into other areas, uh, but still, there was uh, a large demand. A lot of the seamstresses and weavers have otherwise been subjected to like exploitation in factory settings or within the garment industry. Um, so there's a lot of people that um, were looking for alternative uh, and better work for their for their situation. And I knew how popular the parachute variety of, of hammock was becoming in the States. I, I personally had one myself, um, as does a lot of my friends. And I said, well, why aren't you making this kind of hammock? This would be a really easy thing for us to get involved with. And he said, if you can come up with a prototype, a design, we'll get to it and we'll start making it. And that's where it kind of all started. I love the story. I wanted to ask, where, where does the, the, the name come from? Yeah, so... <laughs> Um, when I first started, I spent like months trying to figure out the right name for this, but I, for some reason I had it stuck in my mind that I wanted some kind of like animal as like the, the brand. I I don't know why. Originally it was going to be an elephant for Thailand. Um, something with the trunk, you know, identifying it as, um, something being strong, a strong hammock. So, right. I really had it in my mind that it would, I, I guess it would be an animal. And um, there is another hammock company called Grand Trunk. And so quickly I had to move away from that idea. Um, and I was just at a friend's house uh, hanging out one day and he had um, Thailand. A lot of people have sugar gliders as pets, so flying squirrels essentially. And so this, uh, my friend had a few of them in, in his living room and they were just kind of gliding around and it was pretty cool to watch and it just hit me in an instant that seeing their 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 wingspan and whatnot it kind of like resembled a hammock and just in that moment i was like that's it flying squirrel flying's kind of active the hammocks are for travelers uh it just kind of fit so and that's where that's where it came from huh it's funny how like little events like that can just all of a sudden click and make a complete sense (laughs) it's Uh, crazy yeah I was really stressing about it for, for quite some time because we were getting to a point where like we needed logos, we needed branding, it's, it needed to happen. Um, and I was just really indecisive about it. But it was like in that split second moment, I was just like, that's it. 
We're going to do that, Flying Squirrel. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so interesting. Coming up with a name is so difficult, but and it's you can't really rush it, even though like obviously you have those deadlines. But then like when you know, you know, you're like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> it, it's fascinating because everyone, you really have to to feel it out with a lot of different people. Like, how does this how does this logo make you feel? How do these colors make you feel? I mean, it's it's. A, like a social experiment almost. And we, we kind of did this with the hammock color variations where uh, it was very interesting to see how, you know, some people just really respond negatively to a red as opposed to like a light, softer blue, which is our current logo. And we had like a darker blue before. So we really had to like uh, get feedback, a lot, a lot of feedback to see how people felt when they saw it, the logo and the brand. Yeah, user feedback is so important, especially making sure that it's from like your target demographic. Um, right. Yeah. So, in this journey, uh, you're fr- you're originally from Indianapolis, is that correct? Yeah, born and raised in Indianapolis, and uh, was out in Seattle for about six years before I came to Thailand. So, what made you decide to just be like, all right, I'm going, I'm moving to Thailand? <laughs> um, man, I. Uh, my situation in Seattle was quite nice. I had a great job. I worked for a company called Redfin, um, who's doing quite well right now. And I, that was kind of, uh, you know, like a, an incubator in and of itself. It was a smaller kind of startup, um, at the time and it, it grew into a much larger company. They're actually filing for IPO and they just filed for an IPO. So they're quite big now. Um, but back when I was there, I think I was like employee, 80, 90, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, everybody wore multiple hats. You're working on different projects. I just, I learned so much about that kind of startup environment, um, how to be scrappy and take on other projects, learning new skill sets to get things done. And so that, that really, um, I guess taught me a lot of those kind of, yeah, skills to try to start something, something up. So, and it's just a really motivating atmosphere. And I, I really, really appreciated the whole kind of open door policy with all the managers and the CEO. Even you could just really just go sit down and have a coffee with the CEO in the morning. If you wanted to, it was, it was that openness and, uh, getting everybody feeling like they're involved. Um, and that really, really stuck with me valuing every person at every level. Um, and yeah, and, and empowering them, they then bring more value. I think, um, to their job and to the business because they take more pride in that. And so that really stuck with me. And that's, that's one thing I've really, um, tried to, uh, the kind of culture I'm trying to bring in, into this organization. That kind of experience is so, so valuable. It's something that I sort of wish I had more so before I started ready Eddie, like having sort of that model to work in for a few years and really understand like how it works in a very successful way. Um, so I, I think that was uh, such a great idea, especially if someone's considering to start a business, getting working in that sort of environment, especially when it's done correctly. Oh man, the learning you probably had in that was way better than any college degree. You know, and it's funny. I used to say that I felt like I learned. Now I wasn't a business major, but I I, I definitely learned. I, I felt so much more in that, in that kind of situation. I mean, all the hands-on meetings and we would, you know, go through, go through the company numbers for the quarter together. And, uh, you just, 
felt really a part of some very high-level conversations that maybe otherwise in some other organizations you wouldn't be in that room. And so I, I just that just that idea always stuck with me and just really kind of valuing everybody at every level in the organization. That that really brings a lot of I think value to your product or your service. Um, yeah, my my mom's actually a, a social worker and. And she's another kind of inspiration where uh, she's never worked a day in her life. She loves what she she does. She She's a hospice social worker. So she like literally goes to people's homes uh, and helps them to kind of prepare for the end, uh, which sounds really depressing. But she, she loves that work. And so I just I've come from experiences where, yeah, uh, just kind of have that passion. Uh, and it seemed to me that a lot of those passions came from areas where you're doing some good or having some impact. Um, and that human element to me is, uh, is, is, is a huge factor. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm going off on a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I, I think it's really important for listeners to really hear what drives you, especially like when you start a business, cause it, it's such a difficult thing to do. Um, yeah. when you first moved, so you, you, you were there for six years and then you up, you decided to move to Thailand. Did you have any idea that you were going to start a business when you left? Um, not, not originally, but I think it, it's always been, uh, I guess on the docket. I, it's always something that I've, I've been thinking about doing even back in Seattle when I was at Redfin, I had some business ideas. I was kind of modeling, but nothing I was pursuing. So I think I knew it was on the horizon, but that's not why I came here. I, I had no intention on staying in, in Thailand. I've been here about, I've been in here over three years now, but certainly the business has kept me here. Um, so really it was just kind of the, the urge to travel, to, to have that experience. Uh, when I, when I first traveled to Thailand before I, I quit and actually moved here, I just met a lot of really interesting people um, kind of living out their passions, uh, whether it be just like kind of the backpacker traveler or the, or I had some friends who started a company called Trade Monkey and they were up here in Chiang Mai. And that was kind of my first exposure to like what a social enterprise um, looked like or what that even was. And so I just, I, I started learning about what other people were doing and it was just really inspiring. And I, I, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I didn't have a house in Seattle. I said, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to uproot and just go and travel, it has to happen right now. I can't wait. So I went back. Like I, I took that flight from Tokyo back to Seattle, and like you know, normally on a what a, what a, what is it like a twelve hour flight? I'm knocked out. But that whole flight through the night, I was just wide awake, and I just I couldn't bear the thought of just like going right back to working at the desk and like, I, I just was, I was hooked. I had that travel, it, that travel bug at that point. And so like I was back for about two months and then I, I just, I just quit. Um, I certainly gave him notice and everything left on great terms, but it was just, it was just time for next, next steps. Um, and that's what brought me here. It's crazy how one little trip just changes everything. <laughs> It's, it's crazy. It's really crazy. I mean, I was going through some changes, I think, around that time. I, um, 
like I was, I was learning to meditate and meditation was becoming quite a, a frequent practice in Seattle. Um, I had a bad shoulder problem, went to an acupuncturist and she really, you know, she would just unload all this knowledge of, uh, you know, alternative, uh, alternative medicine, I guess. And she, she gave me a book to read about meditation and that just changed a lot for me. So it just really kind of like broadened my perspective on life, what I wanted, um, and it kind of shifted some values. And, and I think around that time I started traveling, that's when it really started to, to hit me that like, if, if you want to make any kind of change or you want to go have these experiences, you got to do it now. Cause if you wait stuff, life happens. Right. And so, yeah, there's never a good time. Like you always find a reason to convince yourself not to go. And then right. you don't, the last thing you want to be is 45 and looking back and being like, well, crap. <laughs> Exactly. And I wasn't going to do that. So it's, it, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's fun to challenge yourself in that way too. And, and that's quite motivating in its, in its own right. Cause you can kind of prove to yourself, okay, I can do this. And if anything, that kind of gave me more confidence to jump into, uh, even trying to start a business here. So I, yeah, it's, it's a learning experience, uh, for sure. So when you, so you moved to you moved to Thailand and you obviously spent some time there doing some teaching, and then you came up with this idea for Flying Squirrel. How did you? And you obviously you you have um, a number of seamstresses in, in the local community that hand make all of the hammocks, which obviously makes you very unique. Um, but how how did you take it from? Okay, you've got um, the manufacturing quote unquote figured out you have the name um what was next well i have to say that being in chiang mai there was a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of customer contact here so uh chiang mai is in a, uh, a big tourist destination uh and i'm making travel hammocks so how perfect um so i immediately just started getting uh you know product feedback from uh, the local community here is quite, there's a pretty large expat community here as well. Um, yeah, Chiang Mai, it's, uh, it's, it's quite diverse. Lots of people from all over the world are here. So like I, I immediately had a market, uh, of travelers here who, so I, I started selling them actually at a local market, um, in town and they were, they were selling very, very well. Um, and then I started working with a local rock climbing company and getting those into their stores and um, just very grassroots, I would say, when we started. Um, and of course, in that time, we're getting a website up and I'm doing all that kind of uh, uh, traditional setup and of course, uh, Amazon. However, all of that, um, it did take some time, especially Amazon. We didn't get on Amazon until after like a, a year and the website took some time too because because of product development, um, we, we've developed our own straps and, and that has taken quite a long time to really, um, I guess, per perfect or I could just to get it right. And so that, that kind of slowed us down in terms of really kind of getting it, getting it online. Um, but I would also say because of the market here, it also allowed me to, get everything streamlined from production to getting our, our shipping figured out with DHL here. Cause we, we ship everything direct from Thailand. Um, 
it's a pretty nice setup. So it just took us a lot of time to get kind of the logistics figured out because we're not just buying from China and China's not just shipping it over to a fulfillment center in the States. Like we're making it all here. We've got to get it from the village to the bus to take it to DHL. And we've got to have, you know, the DHL rates have to be, uh, you know, feasible for us to operate in this way. There's just, there was just so many things that we had to handle first before we could really, um, for, for better or worse, I think we could have done it quicker. Um, I do have some regrets with that, but you know, it's, it's, it's a fine oiled machine at this point. And I, uh, that took a lot of work, but, but yeah, started in Chiang Mai mainly selling to the travelers, just the backpackers in town. And it, yeah, it was a good way to start. Throughout the process from when you started with obviously that first prototype that you're talking about earlier, how many iterations did you guys go through until you had the, the hammock that you know was up to your standards and that you're obviously offering now on online? That's a good question. Um, I'd say at least, oh man, um, probably more than what I'm quoting. I can't really remember, but I mean five or six different different prototypes. It's it's a, it's a lot easier for us to prototype and iterate just because it it is all in house. I can literally go drive to the seamstress's home and we can sit there together and and knock out a couple prototypes, which is which is another really cool thing about us. Um, how I was saying, you know, we we kind of empower our team to be a part of that team. And so they're really closely involved with uh, product development as well in terms of like, they, they really help us because um, <clears throat> they, they have that expertise in, in sewing techniques and the kinds of thread to use and the tensile strength of this to be. So they're, they're really closely a part of that, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, so, yeah. That's really interesting. Kind of, yeah, yeah no, I, I, the process is probably, for you, did you have any experience in manufacturing or making things before this? Uh, I did, I did not. No, I didn't. Um, because it, because it is, their expertise um, is, is invaluable in terms of like how to, you know, nip and tuck and like make everything very professionally done. They, they do all that in terms of just concept and design, because we do have some unique features on our hammock. Um, that, that just took, yeah, just sitting in the hammock and getting feedback from people and just trying to find ways to, yeah, optimize it a bit more. So what are some of the, um, features that would make you stand out other than obviously the aspect of how it's made and where it's made? Sure. Yeah. The, the design, uh, the design is, is different than a lot of the traditional models, um, it opens up on two sides. So when it's all packed up, it's like kind of like in a little bean shaped pouch and on either end, um, you, you can, you can open it up to, to get that carabiner. So you'd open up one end, take the carabiner out, clip it on, uh, and then open up the other end and just pull it out all at once. So there's a few benefits to that one. Um, it really does set up a lot easier and your hammock never has to touch the ground. And that's really beneficial. Like if you're at the beach, um, obviously your hammock touches the ground for just a second, especially on the sandy beach, you're going to get all kinds of sand in there. You know, you're, you're laying in it without a shirt. That's not comfortable. It gets wet. Um, so the design allows, uh, this 
double barrel pouch design, as we call it, allows it to set up a lot easier and to break it down a lot faster, all without laying it on the ground. Um, so because of that pouch design, the, the actual pouch that the hammock stuffs into is not actually attached to the hammock like a lot of the traditional models. And you can slide it along the body of the hammock, basically changing the the sitting position. So you're kind of um, reducing the excess material because a lot of times you get cocooned in a, in a hammock. You just get lost in material if, if not laying in it correctly. But I wanted a hammock that didn't that didn't always require you to have to lay down. So I wanted a hammock that I could adjust, turn it into like a little hanging seat or a little like chair pod to make it much easier to look at my phone or to read or to reduce the material so I can see the beautiful beach or the mountains that I'm, that I'm hanging out in. So uh, that idea came to me trekking in Nepal on the Annapurna circuit. I had a hammock and I was I had the beautiful mountains in front of me, some of the most beautiful mountains I've ever seen, and I'm just lost in my hammock looking straight up. So I was like, <laughs> I've to adjust this, to enjoy this amazing view and without, you know, having to lay down and, you know, lift your head up forward just to, just to get that view straight ahead. So, um, yeah, the design, the design is uh, one major way that, that I think makes, sets us apart. Yeah, definitely. I think there's, uh, for you guys, there's a few different things that really set you guys apart, and especially in the hammock world where I feel like it's sort of a, um, not like it, there's really not that much you can do, but like most hammock companies pretty much make the same kind of hammock, <laughs> I feel, or at least they're pretty similar, but you guys have a few different aspects that are pretty unique. You know, I feel like the biggest innovation that I can think of is more so just in regards to like weight with like ultra light packing backpacking like getting that like getting a hammock that can be super light um but what you're doing i think is it's a nice little like oh there's other ways in which we can obviously improve this thing yeah yeah and i think just having that adjustability adjustability um gives you more ways to use it meaning that you're going to use your hammock more and for me personally i literally use a hammock every day um and i use it for different reasons uh, obviously to take a nap or just to like really relax. Um, but also to, to read in. And if you've ever laid in a hammock to read, you're holding the book over your head with your arms up above your head and your shoulders get tired and you can only do it for so long. Um, so yeah, the adjustable pouch aspect of aspect of it gives it a nice, um, yeah, chair like feature that, uh, allows me to use it a, a whole lot more. So, uh, we have customers that, that don't use it at all. They don't really care for it, but it's, it's nice to have, have that option. And we have people that only hang in it when it's like adjusted. Uh, maybe it's like, you know, sitting in their garage and they just want a little spot for, for like a chair. Um, and it makes it kind of more social too. I, I think hammocking now is, is a communal activity, you know, on the college campuses at parks, people are doing these, they're hammocking together. So, you know, you don't want to get drowned in all the material. You can't see your friends or what you're doing around you, but you could, you know, adjust your hammock. And now everybody's got a nice chair with great visibility, makes it more social. It's just gives it some additional functionality. Definitely. Definitely. Did you have any, like throughout this journey, did you ever, I assume you probably did have any mentors that helped you get to where you are now? Yeah, quite uh, like a hand, I would say a handful. I never worked necessarily directly with just one 
person ongoing, but I would say that my earlier mentors and especially influencers would, would be the, the owner, um, of trade monkey. His name's Mark Weber and he was out here operating his company. Um, and they work with, uh, local tribes all over Northern Thailand, making a variety of different products, um, from, from yoga type products to guitar straps to, uh, all kinds of like eco-friendly handmade products. And so they were the ones that really, uh, show me what social entrepreneurship, I guess was all about. And the idea of, yeah, running a for-profit business that, uh, is focused on, on having some positive impact in some way. And I, I just, the concept was new to me, uh, cause I knew about the, the NGOs and nonprofits and everything that they do. And they're certainly kind of more like mission based, mission driven. They have, they are working for an impact. Um, but for a for-profit business, I didn't quite know about that. So they, uh, and my other friend, Alexa, who worked for uh, Trade Monkey as well, I just, I learned so much from them. Mark used to give me business books and um, just kind of really started to ignite that, that flame, I guess, um, to really get me motivated and going. Um, so yeah, I, I, would, I would say those guys over at Trade Monkey were a big first help for me. You really can't um, replace a quality mentor. They can be so they can help you save so much time because they've been there before. You know, they were like, "Hey, don't do that. <laughs> that will cost you yeah. this or whatever." Yeah, I think I think mentors are good, at, certainly at, at every stage. And uh, you know, Mark, Mark and Alana, the, the owners of Trade Monkey, they're actually gone. And um, but I also find other, you know. Chiang Mai has a lot of entrepreneurs here. It, it, it attracts um, a lot of like-minded people. So I, I feel like I benefit from that quite a bit. There's a lot of meetups, a lot of um, coffee talks and groups, and, and a lot of the, the community is quite small here, I guess, in terms of like the, the entrepreneurs that live here. And so there's a lot of resources and a lot of great um, – a, a lot of people doing really big things here. So I, I feel like I have – uh, you know, some resources I can reach out to here, although I could reach out more, I guess. <laughs> you can always do more. <laughs> um, yeah. So yes. obviously one of the big aspects of your of Flying Squirrel is the sustainability aspect in the sense of the fact that you're employing locally and you're paying for wages. But I'd love for you to sort of expand on that and share sort of your 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 philosophy on Flying Squirrel's commitment to sustainability? Yeah, so I guess the, the biggest position we take is that nothing is coming from like a, a from mass factory production. Um, and we, my, my personal belief is that if you take on the model that we, we take on and, and basically empowering these these our production to, to being a part of our team, I think that translates into to better quality. They take more pride in their work. They're excited about it. They, I mean, they, they follow me, they follow the page on, on Facebook. So they see every time I post a picture about them, they see the videos that I display that they take a lot of pride in being a part of, of, of what we're trying to do. They understand it. They get it. Um, and they're they're very much a, a part of it, and so 
you know, there's a lot of attention right now around companies like Ivanka Trump's shoes. I, I don't know if you've seen in the news, but there's a lot of there's there's a serious investigation. I think it's a criminal investigation about what what's happening in the factory producing her shoes. And I think a lot of companies um, that have been guilty of this, what they subcontract out this work to developing countries like in Southeast Asia and and these subcontractors go out and they hire maybe some of these um, these dodgier factories operating and, and um, a lot of these companies kind of claim plausible deniability because they, they weren't aware. And, and so there, there's this separation from companies from their production lines. And it's just crazy to me, this detachment from a lot of brands seem very detached from their products and where they come from and where they're made. It's like they have no idea. And that's just, that's just crazy to me. And so as a result, I think situations like what's happening um, at Ivanka Trump's factory, I'm sure they make more than just her shoes, but I mean, it's, it, it's, it's really serious what's happening over there, like modern day type slavery. So I think more attention needs to be brought to, I guess, not so much, yes, that, that that's happening, but also there's also com- companies trying to do it differently, like us. And so it's kind of a silent fight in a way to, to not only bring attention to that, but to show people that you don't be more conscious about where your products come from, just like kind of what Ready Yeti is doing. You're bringing, you're giving people a platform to say, hey, you have alternatives and I know you care. And a lot of people do, especially you know, younger generations, millennials, the people I'm my target market, essentially, I think they genuinely care. And I think they genuinely want an alternative. And, and that's what we're trying to provide. We're just trying to, I guess, do it the right way. And we believe people will uh, identify with that. You know, it's funny, like, growing up, for me, at least, with certain things, you get to a certain age, and you, well, you, you, when you're growing up, you sort of assume that things are done a certain way. Like you just assume that, like, hey, this product's being made. Okay, it's being made overseas. In my mind, like being a kid, you're just like, okay, it's probably made by someone for a fair wage, and it's you know, all of these different things. And then you get older, and you realize, like, wait a minute, <laughs> um, yeah. why, why does no one have te- like? Why don't you have this figured out? Why has no one thought about this? And like. It's scary, yeah. but it's also exciting because there's a lot of opportunity to really make some big changes like what you're doing with Flying Squirrel and bringing awareness to the fact that like, hey, when you're buying products from a brand, you, you, you have a choice to buy from someone who is employing locals with a fair wage, helping them grow in their community. And I, I think... Um, I think it's a really important thing, and we're definitely going to see a really big change in the next couple of years. We've already seen it come a pretty far away. Obviously, with like Nike, they were sort of yeah. the first ones that really got caught doing it, and that like it tanked their brand for a while. And now they're definitely on the more leading edge of trying to prevent that from happening. Right. Um, and so, like, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes going in in the future. Um, so, I wanted to ask you, what would you say? have been one of the hardest aspects of starting Flying Squirrel? Well, that's an easy question. Um, you know, I'm in, I'm in Thailand. It's, it's very different than uh, where I come from. The, the cultural nuances are, are probably the biggest challenge. And, and I mean that probably on every level of the business. Um, 
So from like a production standpoint, um, this is one of the biggest challenges that I think we have. It's kind of a cart before the horse catch 22 kind of thing where, um, we, we really can't hire new seamstresses unless we can really commit to uh, a certain level of work on ongoing. Um, certainly the sales need to be there before we can do that. So it's kind of a difficult catch 22 with this because in, in, in Thai culture, and I think a lot of, a lot of Asian cultures, they, there's this idea of losing face and that means basically kind of being publicly embarrassed. And so, um, people are aware of the hammock project and if somebody were to get involved, I, I think there would be some excitement in it cause they get to work from home. They make a much higher living wage than their alternative work. It's a good situation. Um, but if I can't deliver, then, then that seamstress would lose face seemingly in this community. And then we would create a reputation of not being a reliable employer. And then nobody will want to work with us because we're not, we're not, living up to our promise. Um, we haven't run into that. We're, we're happily keeping all four of our seamstresses on our team busy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really, it, it's really delicate with the, the cultural aspects of that. And also the communication, that's probably the number one thing. And I don't mean communication and uh, they speak a different language, it's the style of communicating because um, I can speak a little bit of Thai and a lot of times they can speak a little bit of English so we can communicate um, on, a, on a pretty baseline level in terms of like if I go to Bangkok and I need to deal with the factory um, and getting material or sourcing a different kind of material and trying to have that conversation. And in Thailand, nobody wants – and these factories, nobody wants to talk to you unless the money has already been like paid. So if you have questions about material, be like, oh, I'm curious about ripstop or I, I'm, I'm curious about applying a, uh, uh, a waterproof um, – element to the to the material like they just aren't prepared to give you answers unless you're prepared to spend money right then and there so it's like again another catch-22 i'm not sure if i want to buy that because i don't i don't have my questions answered i don't know maybe 100 percent what i'm buying but you don't want to give me those answers because you're not sure if i'm gonna buy and then we just kind of go in circles and so that kind of stuff happens we just recently bought a new industrial sewing machine for our our strap manufacturing. And that's just how, how it kind of goes. The communication. I asked, I asked the woman, do you have this kind of machine? She's like, yes, I'll have to order it from Bangkok. Are you willing to wait? Of course I don't hear anything for a week. I go back and she's like, Oh yeah, yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Um, we can help you. No worries. And then I call back and then, (laughs) and then the machine just never comes, but she just doesn't, she doesn't want to disappoint me by telling me no. So that's kind of a cultural aspect that it's kind of a, a yes culture. It's like, yes, we can help you. Yes. But I don't want to tell you that ultimately we probably can't. Uh, so it's just that different. sounds so it's frustrating. Just, <laughs> it's incredibly frustrating. And it's not just me. I have friends who work, uh, who source materials for their businesses too. And it's, it's kind of the same thing. So I have to do all of this legwork to know exactly what they have and then go to them and say, okay, I want this, this, and this, and then, and then it's seamless. So it's getting better earlier on. That was much more difficult, but now that they see that we're actually legitimate and we're, we're consistent, um, it's getting a bit easier, but in terms of product development, taking on some other things, 
finding new materials, it's going to be the same. Uh, it's going to be the same ordeal. So that's that's absolutely the biggest challenge that that we face here. It's so funny. I, 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 that sort of challenge, I never even would have thought about. Exi- thought would exist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you could go on and on about all sorts of things like that. Um, I, I want to ask you, what is your greatest fear and how do you manage it in regards to flying squirrel? Sure. Good question. Um, I would say the biggest fear would be not having work for our team and then them kind of losing trust in us because we, they are the backbone of this operation. I, I, I can't sew hammocks together. So I, I need to keep them busy. I need them happy. I need them working. Um, and that's exactly what they want. So it's, you know, certainly a lot of pressure for me to, to get the sales. Sales will translate in more work. Um, so yeah, I just say the biggest fear is, is letting them down and not, not having the work that, we've promised to them. It's, it can be such a big fear um, as a business owner when you have people relying on you. Um, yeah. How many, yeah. how many units have you sold since you started? Since we started. So that was 2016. So basically the beginning of 2016 to now we're, we're at, we're about 1300 pieces up to this point. That's great. So it's been a, it's been a good start for you guys, and I assume it's continuing or showing like it's continuing to grow. It is. It is. Yeah, especially uh, right now, hammocks um, hammocks are really popular in the states. It's summertime, so I, I think there is a lot of interest over there. It's nice because the seasons really complement uh, one another. They're they're kind of in the inverse. So when it's summertime in the states, and which is hammock season essentially. Uh, it's low season here and then vice versa. So come, you know, winter time in the States, it's high season here. So I've got this nice kind of, uh, these, these two markets that kind of complement one another. So instead of it being such a dramatic seasonal, uh, seasonality kind of issue, we've, we've, we've got a little buffer there, which is kind of nice. Oh, that's so, that's so cool. Like thinking about just seasonal businesses in general, being able to have two markets like that. That's yeah. that, that's such a good way to be able to constantly grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say have been some of the biggest mistakes that you've made so far? Um, I would probably say um, we things went a little slow when we started having um, some production issues with the straps, like finding the best material. We we had to iterate and iterate and iterate, and so. Um, I think I really put a delay on the launch of um, at least the Amazon listing and really the, the website, I believe, because we didn't have those straps ready. And so I re- I, what I should have done is just gotten the hammocks up and started selling without straps. Now, it makes my stomach turn to think that anybody would sell a hammock without a way to hang it. Um, and that exists on the market and that drives me crazy that if you buy a hammock, <laughs> you have no way to hang it. And so I think it's very disingenuous to sell a hammock without a way to hang it. And then you have to go have somebody make a trip to the hardware store, buy some rope. How do they know they're getting the right rope? They've got to tie their own. That, it's just a, it's a pain. Or you have to just buy them separately. Um, so my thought was that we shouldn't offer a hammock without 
a means of hanging it. And so we did offer some rope for a while, but I, uh, rope is hard on trees. It strips tree bark. So you, you, you really want to stay away from rope as a suspension method for a hammock. So I just really focused on getting these webbing straps developed. It just took a, a lot of time and it slowed, it slowed some things down and I'm sure there were some sales lost because of it. Yeah, I, I totally get that. It's funny, little nuances of the business that you sort of learn as you go. Um, what advice would you give to someone that wanted to start um, a business that had a social aspect or even a business where you're sort of operating in this remote nomad-like style um, or even just a business in general? Sure. Well, as cliche as it is, um, I, d- I think, I think who is it? Gary Vaynerchuk talks a lot about this. He's kind of the uh, marketing guru guy. <laughs> I, I like what he has to say a lot of times. And one thing he really stresses is self-awareness. And I think that was what I was going through in Seattle when I was really getting into my meditation practice. And that's when things were really starting to, to change. Um, for me and my per- perspective. And so I, I think I was becoming more self, self-aware. self So I think for anybody starting anything, uh, do an inventory, self-inventory, and just kind of be sure that is exactly what you want to do. And certainly talking to other business owners and realizing that it's kind of a lifestyle. Uh, you're never, I'm never off. I'll just use me as an example. I'm never turned off. I'm answering customer emails at 10:30 at night. I, uh, you know, waking up at 6:30 AM to do a podcast for, with Red Yeti. And, uh, <laughs> you, you just, you're kind of always on and, you know, depending on how many people you, you found your company with, I mean, flying squirrel, doesn't do anything unless I'm at the helm moving it. Like we do have a lot of automation and advertising and things that do kind of operate itself, but like to grow this thing, to scale it, to make this thing move, uh, it's, it's gotta be me. So if I take a week off, like that means flying squirrel takes a week off and that's just not, that's not good. So doing the inventory, knowing what you're maybe passionate about or, or what actually, um, will keep you motivated, having a purpose, uh, what the, the Simon Sinek, uh, the Ted talk here, know your why, understand why you want to do anything. And, and for me, the, the social impact, social enterprise model, it just clicked. It made sense because I, I love the idea of startup business, especially with a product that is like kind of a lifestyle product that I personally identify with. Um, that keeps me interested because like I'm already kind of paying attention to the industry. But, but I wasn't going to just go to China and say, hey, I want to buy a thousand of these pieces, slap my logo on it, and let's start selling them. I was not going to do that. I'm not saying that's a bad route, but it just wasn't going to keep me motivated. I know that wasn't going to – that would work for maybe six months and then on to the next. So I guess I, I, I would say if you really are looking to pursue that, spend a lot of time maybe self-reflecting and doing some inventory and really identifying what you think will keep you motivated and what your why really is and, and never do it for the money because I mean, like I said, it's like, uh, you kind of live it. And if you're only living it for, for the paycheck or the money for one, that, that takes a while to really kind of get going anyway. I mean, you just really got to have a passion for what you're doing 
and and just make the sacrifices early on and and kind of got to love the grind instead of the end result it's all about the journey yeah all about the journey entrepreneurship it's 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 really interesting because it's it's basically like a long journey of getting rejected <laughs> and then eventually getting that like, oh, this someone didn't say no. <laughs> like, this yeah, is yeah, this is really- working. And then it slowly builds. And then you realize you remember like, oh right, this is this is why I'm doing this, like because I'm creating a positive impact and everything that goes along with that, um, which is it's so so important. Yeah. It keeps me it keeps me motivated and and I think that that's a pretty critical part for I, sure. I agree. I totally agree. So where do you see flying squirrel going in the next year, five years, 10 years, if you've even thought about it? Yeah. Um, obviously I want to grow our, our team, um, where we operate in this small village. It's an interesting little place. Basically all the men are like knife manufacturers, like steel workers making, making, knives and the women are are basically in the garment industry um and so a lot of how thai families are are structured um everybody's kind of living under one roof so there's a few generations in one in one house and a lot of these households are matriarchal families the women are running the show the women are working they're bringing in the income um but they're also raising children they're taking care of their mother uh so many of them physically just cannot go work in a factory for 10 hours a day at 300 baht minimum wage. 300 baht is like, uh, maybe like $11 us a day as minimum wage. And that's legal. That's very legal. Um, so ideally I would like to see us working more with these stay at home seamstresses who are very hungry for work. They get taken advantage of by local companies that know that they don't have to legally pay them. Uh, they can get away with it and pay them under the table because again, they don't want these seamstresses don't want to lose face in their community. They want to be able to say, yes, we have work. At least I'm bringing some money into the household. Um, so they get taken advantage of. So we would like to pull more families out of that circumstance. And what we find also with one of our households, we, we work with um, a woman, Grandma Dang. So Grandma Dang is obviously uh, the grandma of the household, kind of the leader of the household. She physically can't go work in a factory. So we've we've had her on board for about a year now. And so her, her daughter has now quit her job at a factory. She has a young son that stays at the house. So now she can be there. She doesn't have to pay for, uh, childcare, even though I don't even think that's an option. Grandma Dang, I think was kind of watching her, but it, it, it starts to have this trickle down effect. And then, so now, um, the sister comes over and helps out as well. She's not a full-time employee, but she kind of, it's, it becomes like a, a communal family activity to like hang out, make hammocks, chat with your mom, your son's there. Hang out. It just creates such a better environment. So if we can create more of that, um, I think we could make some serious uh, impact in these communities. And that that's a big goal of mine is to, if we could employ everybody in these villages and beyond. I mean, Northern Thailand is, uh, is just, has a lot of these circumstances. Um, that would be pretty powerful for, for me, quite an achievement if we could really like take this whole village of where we're currently operating and make it like everyone's working for flying squirrel. 
happily. They're excited. They're making good money. They can put their kids in secondary education now because it just would it would help transform we, the, these communities. So I would really like to be able to start seeing maybe in like five years time. Uh, I got to see the son now. He's in high school. You see, he has plans now to go to Chiang Mai University and study this. And but maybe he wouldn't have had that opportunity otherwise if um, you know his his mother had to work for three hundred baht a day or or less in other circumstances. So yeah, I I would like to see us transform some of these communities just through Flying Squirrel. Having a mission like that definitely makes it a lot easier to reply to emails at 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it does. It does. And keeping that in perspective, sometimes that's not always easy of looking at the, you know, the the long-term macro, why we're doing this. Um, And the day-to-day, no, it's not always on the forefront of my mind, but like having these conversations, it, it's almost refueling that, that motivation. So it's, yeah, it's good to keep it in check and remember I know exactly what you mean. So, I, I you've touched about some of the great aspects of, of what you're doing, and one of the, the all the aspects that you really enjoy. But I wanted to ask you, what to you really is the best part about running Flying Squirrel? Oh man, so much. <laughs> um, I'd say the best thing is is I, I just I love the product. I love what a hammock represents. It's a lifestyle wholeheartedly. It's not just something that you. You know, you just string up when you're tired. I, I, I keep a hammock on me at all times. Like, I don't think people realize, like, how often you would have a hammock if you had a small, lightweight hammock you could just toss in your bag. You, you'd be surprised how often you'd use it. Uh, and I think spending 15, 20 minutes in a hammock a day is like kind of meditation. I think it'll make you happier. So I love just being a part of, of that and, and being able to be the one to create our design. And I I just take a lot of pride in that. But I'd say the best thing is, like I was saying before, the seamstresses, uh, well, three of the four, Grandma Dang's not on Facebook, but the others are on Facebook and they do follow our page. So a lot of times I'll post a video of Sumali and Sukanya, they're the sisters and they, they work in the same house taking care of their family. They were the first two we hired on and they're on Facebook and they'll see a video I posted of them. And then I'll see them share that post and they'll write something in Thai. And so the, the translator's terrible. So like I'll, I'll have a Thai friend like translate, what, what are they saying? What are they saying? And, and they'll say something like they're, they're very proud to be a part of this. And they're, they see themselves as being a part of this team. And uh, it's just, I mean, it almost brings tears to my eye. It's so, it's, it's exactly what we're trying to do. And they feel a part of this. And there's nothing more rewarding than seeing that. I, I just, it, it makes me, it makes me realize that, okay, what we actually are trying to do it is working. Because, I mean, it's more to them now than just an income. I think they really identify now as, like, they're a part of the Flying Squirrel team. And, and that's, that's powerfully rewarding. Oh yeah, it's, it's such an. I, I imagine that's such an incredible feeling. I can just hear it in your voice. Um, well, this it was really good to sit down and really chat with you, Brian, and really get to know you and Flying Squirrel. I know we've talked a little bit in the past, and um, we've gone back and forth a bit. But it was really, really nice to be able to hear your story and hear what really drives you and your why. Um, but for for listeners that want to keep tabs on what you're doing and follow along, where is really the best place for them to do that? 
Uh, Facebook and Instagram. Check us out, uh, Flying Squirrel Outfitters, on Facebook uh, and Instagram. We're at uh, FSO Hammocks. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're very active there, so we're constantly posting and, and sharing videos of behind the scenes. We, we really try to put um, – yeah, all the behind-the-scenes behind stuff um, on the forefront so people can really f- see what we're doing. More recently, we went to Bangkok to source um, some material, and I I just took some quick video and just threw a really like poor video together. But it, it I think people would find it very interesting, uh, you know – I'm, I'm American. I've, I've not, uh, I'm not used to seeing the kinds of things like you'd find in Chinatown and Bangkok. And so I want to share that with people because it's different. Our journey is very different in how we're putting our, our stuff together, our products. And so, yeah, follow us along. I think we've got interesting stuff, uh, to share and, and our experience is a little different. And I think people would get a kick out of some of it. Definitely, Brian. I really love what you're doing. And for anyone that's listening, if you're listening between July 25th and August 8th, you can head over to redyeti.com because we're actually doing a giveaway with Flying Squirrel and Proof Outerwear. So definitely go check that out if you want to enter to win a hammock. And um, with that, Brian, I really appreciate you taking time. It was a blast. Um, I'm really excited to see what you guys do in the future. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And, uh yeah, really excited about Ready Yeti as well. I love what you guys are doing. So thanks for um, uh, thanks for giving us the time. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Yeti Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.